as we look to our Lord in prayer. So, Father, you know the needs that are here. You know the issues and all the services. You know that what weighs on people's hearts. Life can be intense. Eternity is long. Jesus broke into time and died in our place for our sins. Thank you, Father, for the assurance we can have of salvation. Thank you, Father, for the work of Christ, the resurrected one. And asking now, Father, that you will use this particular chapter to open our eyes to effectively minister to others who are struggling. And Father, for those who come into these services that are struggling, I pray you'll use these verses, Father, to minister to them at their point of need. So, Father, we're praying once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a remarkable story about biblical comfort. For you see, Martin Niemöller was part of the Confessing Church in Nazi Germany, pushing back against Nazism and Hitler's involvements. And his close associate, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was ahead of the curve. Bonhoeffer had been imprisoned by the Gestapo in April of 1943. His letters from prison became a bestseller after the war. And among the letters is this incredible poem I have it in my office at home, written to his fiancée. Her name was Maria. And the poem is entitled New Year 1945. And it's the third stanza that people are still talking about in evangelical circles. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain? At thy command we will not fall to, thankfully receiving all that is given by thy loving hand. He penned this to his fiancée, knowing that his time was short, was... Three months later, just as the war was ending, Hitler had Bonhoeffer put to death. Don't forget that story. Don't forget that poem. Because some 18 years later, across the Atlantic, in the United States of America, there's another bride-to-be, a Maria type, who is now grieving the death of her fiancé much like Maria had been, and found comfort in Bonhoeffer's poem, which had been published, Letters in Prison, and now read around the world. Her fiancé, who had died from injuries in a sledding accident, was the son of Joseph Bailey and his wife Mary Lou. He was the founder of Eternity magazine. And when she mailed Bonhoeffer's poem to them, well, Joe and Mary Lou also found comfort in the poem... New Year, 1945. Another 12 years go by. 
Now we're 30 years past Bonhoeffer's death. And Joseph Bailey receives a letter from a pastor in Massachusetts telling him of a terminally ill woman in a Boston hospital for some time and had, he had given her Joe's book on heaven, which of course contained the poem. He gave it to her as comfort for her soul. And the pastor said that the dying woman had stayed awake late the previous night reading the book, pondering the poem, and told him of the comfort and help she had received from it. A few hours later, she died. The woman, the pastor revealed, was Maria, Bonhoeffer's fiancée from 30 years previous. Comfort had come full circle. This chapter is about comfort that comes full circle. It begins with it. It ends with it. And God is in the midst of it. Now this morning, if you find yourself thinking about those who need comfort, or maybe you are the one in need of comfort, and you have been listening to the voices, or you know of voices who have come up with wrong thoughts, wrong counsel, about where God is, why suffering exists, and how all this relates to practical everyday living. And you're wondering, what can I do to refute false thinking with regard to God? Where perhaps they view that God lacks the power to intervene, or God lacks the love to intervene. Or maybe they've got a wrong view of suffering and relationship to God. And you're wondering now, what can I do to set the record straight and offer not religious counsel, but true biblical comfort? What I want to do with you now is to draw out three significant, what we're going to call this morning, refutations, where you go about refuting those who argue for the wrong views of where God is in the midst of suffering. Now the first comes out of verse 17 through 21 of this 21st chapter. And when having to refute beliefs about God and suffering, I want you to begin by noting with me the questions that are posed here about God's fairness. Because you and I are going to bump into people that are saying, well, if God were fair, I wouldn't be going through this. Or if God were fair, then the ones I care about wouldn't be going through this. Where is God, and why is God allowing this to happen? Now, Job is hurting. Job is struggling. Job's in pain. He has lost things materially. He has lost his health, something that's affecting him physically. Most significantly, he has lost his children. It's relationally. Story of loss. And yet, what he finds is that his religious counselors have appeared on the scene. And when they speak of the way in which the other people who are opposed to God experience suffering in this world, Zophar in particular says, well, their life is brief. And Job says, 
I've seen examples where those opposed to God, their life is long. Furthermore, Alphaz Bilda and Zophar, the three counselors, are saying, oh, the, uh, those that oppose to God, their, their experiences of pleasure in life are temporary. And Job is saying, hey, you know what? I've seen a lot of happy faces among those that are opposed to God. And also, Alphaz Bilda and Zophar have been throughout these chapters saying that the death of the one opposed to God is going to be painful. And he's saying, you know, I've seen some people die, and they've been pretty much pain-free. And they were opposed to God. Now, Job is a threat to these three counselors. And why is that? The reason is, is because they have pinned Job's suffering on the fact that he must have done something wrong. He must have done something wrong, and therefore he's going through what he's going through, and if he would only repent of what he did wrong, then he will be free from this pain and this suffering. It's called the prosperity gospel. And they feel threatened about the fact that Job is saying, I can't pin my suffering on any particular thing. If he's true, it means that they're also vulnerable to such sufferings, and they don't want to hear about that. This entire world is trying to figure out why is there suffering, why am I going through what I'm going through, and where do I go with this kind of thinking, this kind of information. And Job is firsthand, example A of the fact that it's possible to suffer where you can't pinpoint a particular sin as to the reasons why you're suffering, and then you're wondering, and so where is God, and what is God doing, what's God's purpose in all of this, you see. Now, about those questions. Four of them. Job's about to pose four questions to get Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who I speak of in our insert this morning. You can track their thinking, their process, their, the reasons how, why they, they view things as they do. But notice his questions as they begin to unfold first. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out? He's in essence asking, uh, are you sure about that? Second question, that their calamity comes upon them? Third question, that God distributes pains in his anger? Fourth question, that they're like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? Now, what you want to do with people who've got God in a box and have a very reduced, restrictive view of suffering you need to be able to pose questions to them to get to start to rethink what they believe. It happened years ago. Two sisters appeared in my office, troubled. Dad has been hospitalized for a long period of time, declining rapidly. They've been praying that somebody would come into his room to share the good news of Jesus Christ because he lived out of state. Much to their happiness, somebody appeared with a cross around uh, on their chest, chain, cross, a chaplain from the hospital. They were burdened because Dad had not yet put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe this is the moment. He came in and listened to this man's life story and told this man, if you're good, God will accept you. And they were stunned. 
this is religious counsel coming from a man with chain and cross. Didn't talk about sin. Didn't talk about salvation. If you're good enough, God's going to accept you. And they didn't know what to do with that kind of religious counsel. What do you do when false religious counsel is being delivered? Because these three counselors believe that God exists. These three counselors talk freely about God, but these three counselors have the wrong view of where God is and how God relates to suffering. There's a difference between religious counsel and biblical truth. And so now what they've got to be able to do is to figure out a way to minister to their dad at his true point of need. For you and I know all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I said, I've got to get on the phone. And so I called a large church and asked in particular in that setting that one of the associate pastors somehow find a way to get over to the hospital and talk to this man who the daughters have been praying for. And he did. He came in, and you know what he did? He started asking questions. But how good is good enough? At what point do you think you're good enough to be acceptable before God? And where do you get that information as to how good is good enough? And he couldn't answer. And then the associate pastor began to talk about the one who is perfectly good who came to die in our place for our sins, who understood suffering because this man was suffering. And then after sharing the gospel, asked the question, would you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he did. Questions were needed. And oftentimes questions are going to be necessary to be able to refute false counsel to be able to address false thinking so that the truth of God's word can penetrate the hearts even of those who are hurting. Now, these are religious counselors. They've got a minimized view of God. They've got a restrictive view of suffering. They wouldn't know what to do if subsequently the suffering one, Jesus, on that cross, dying in our place for our sins, they would have assumed then that Jesus must have done something wrong, you see, with that line of thought. We need an expanded view of God. We need an expanded view of suffering. And of all people, it is Job who's counseling the counselors. And there are going to be times in your life where you're going to be counseling the counselor. There are going to be times where God may be using you to pastor the pastor of a setting that, where he doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And you're going to have to use a series of questions to get them to start rethinking their beliefs because even the religious unbeliever has beliefs. And you're going to have to get them to start thinking about their own set of unbeliefs and their own beliefs in the midst of their unbeliefs and lead them to Jesus. So here's Job now. Four significant questions being used to open eyes among those that are struggling. And so now, look what he does after the four questions. You're up to verse 19. 
He quotes them. Uh, he's been listening now to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Notice the quote mark you have got in your Bible at this point. You say. It doesn't say I say. You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let them pay it out to them. They may know it. What is he doing? He knows that what they're insinuating is that, Job, your children died because of your sins. They died prematurely because of your sins. And you're paying the consequences because of your concealed sins. Repent and allow God to begin to bless you again. Now this kind of prosperity thinking, it's out there. And you've got to be able to address it well. But Job knows their thought processes. Job is now quoting them at this point. That's why he says that. And then in verse 20, he goes on to say that the conclusions they've drawn, let their own eyes see their destruction, let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them? As he thinks about the house that was destroyed by the, by the tornado that came sweeping across the land, collapsed, and as a result, the children in that house died when the number of their months is cut off. You've got to find a way to be able to enter into the woundedness of other people, which Job's counselors don't do, and then open eyes to where truth is to be found in a relationship with God. And that is the way it was with Diane Kopp in her wonderful volume on Job, written by an oncologist who loved Jesus. Poor Job. The torment got bigger and bigger, particularly during the nighttime hours. The same thing happens to my patients. I had a teenage patient with terminal cancer who had difficulty falling asleep at night. So one night, I brought my guitar to the hospital. Now this is a professor of medicine at Yale. I brought my guitar to the hospital hoping that song would accomplish what words could not. Knowing that Eric's family were of a German heritage, I started out with some German folk music. The father, with a thick accent, his father was so tickled that he in turn called Eric's grandfather and held the phone to my guitar as we sang together. The next day, we made a discharge plan for hospice care at home, for if Eric was going to die, he wanted to die at home. This is a wise woman. When I arrived at their home as their attending physician, for my first post-discharge house call. Eric's grandfather was there at the house. He had a Christian background, but he was not in a good relationship with God. He was blaming God. But especially at night. Why Eric, he asked, on his pillow in the dark. Tears filled his eyes. Anger at God occupied his heart. Whenever he thought of his grandson dying. I took my guitar, I took it out of my case, ran through my German repertoire. Opah had known most of these folk songs since childhood and he sang with me and from his eyes I could see well, he was back home in Germany, Deutschland. Then I switched to a different form of song, Jesus. Name above all names. 
and beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Tears formed in the eyes, you see, of this embittered old man. This was a new song to him, but the word spoke directly to his heart. And with calloused hands, he swept the tears away from his eyes. That's the most beautiful song I've ever heard in my life, he said. That night, he turned his heart to God. You've got to understand where they're coming from. When someone's hurting, you've got to know their language, literally and metaphorically. You've got to understand what they value, who they value. You've got to bring their, the song into the night. This is something that seemed to be distant from the mindset of Job's counselors. So Job has to counsel the counselors. You ever have to do that? He begins with the questions. The questions posed about God's fairness. We noted four of them in 17 through 21. But now, a second refutation comes out of verses 22 through 26. When having to refute beliefs about God and suffering, I want you to note, second of all, now the claims expressed about life's destinies. Back to that religious figure who entered into that hospital room. God's going to accept you, he said, because you're basically a good person until another pastor comes on the scene and tells this suffering person, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus understands suffering. He died in your place for your sins. Being good isn't good enough. You've got to put your faith and trust in the one who is good, Jesus. And he did. And so now we've got two religious figures on our hands. A religious unbeliever and a religious believer that entered this gentleman's hospital room. And such is the spiritual warfare in the landscape of humanity. Which means then, if you have a loved one who enters a hospital, it's very important that you not only get involved with the doctors and the nurses, you've got to interview the chaplains. You've got to ponder who else enters that room that you're burdened for. You have to think holistically. And so now, Job is having to think holistically for these religious counselors. And so he understands their claims. And somewhat sarcastically now, in verse 22, utilizes still another question, which you've got to do in both religious unbelieving sectors and secular unbelieving sectors. You've got to use questions to open up conversations. Will any teach God knowledge? Seeing that he judges those who are on high? In other words, they're very big on God judging because they believe that God is judging Job. So here's what he does. After posing this question, he sets up a brilliant contrast. Getting these religious counselors at this point now to rethink their assumptions. Here's what Job says, beginning with verse 23. 
One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. His pail is full of milk, the marrow of his bones moist. That's one side of humanity. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. And now what does he do? He takes the contrast and he makes the connection. If you're going to minister effectively, not only do you set up the contrast, you then have to make the connection. What do these two opposing camps have in common? Verse 26. They lie down alike in the dust. And the worms cover them. And so now, when the chaplain entered that room with his own assumptions about God, and then when the associate pastor had to enter the room to refute what was being stated by the chaplain, you've got to find ways not only to pose questions, you've got to find ways to be able to address the claims being made by religious unbelievers who are offering a counsel to those who are hurting and be able to bring truth to bear in the settings of life in which people are struggling. Are you doing that? And allowing people to come to grips with who God is and how God works. There's this incredible story about a painter who's conducting a class for artists. He was speaking on the subject of artistic composition. And he emphasized that it was wrong to portray a woodland a forest or wilderness without painting into it a path out of the trees. And that when a true artist draws any kind of picture, such as a landscape, he needs to give or she needs to give picture, the picture in out. Otherwise you find yourself entangled in trees and you become disoriented and despairing with the experience. People are looking for the way out. We need to point to the one who is the way out. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But to do it effectively, you're going to have to pose questions. Pose questions about what is true fairness and then to address claims being expressed about life's destinies and offer biblical perspectives on where you take such thinking. Once you do that, then in the midst of human sufferings, you're ready for the third refutation I see here in this chapter of comfort, that thirdly, when having to refute beliefs about God and suffering, Note with me the assumptions made about personal trials. These counselors have made the assumption Job must have done something wrong to experience the suffering that Job is having to endure. And so now Job is going to go after the assumptions. And likewise, when you are relating to people that are struggling with why suffering's in this world, why are things the way they are, they're going to have assumptions about people in general, God in general, and you're going to have to get them to rethink their assumptions. Behold, he says, I know your thoughts, your schemes to wrong me. 
In other words, they have been repetitive. They they can't seem to expand the conversation of human suffering. It's like that cultist that arrives at your door and ends up saying the same thing that you've heard over and over and over again. And when you start to refute them and you get them off track, they don't know what to do, so they go back to the same thing again and again and again. It's very restrictive, very limited. But then notice this. He quotes them. You've got to be able to understand what the religious unbeliever thinks and what the religious unbeliever is saying, and you've got to understand what the secular unbeliever thinks and what the secular unbeliever is saying. He has the capacity, even in his suffering, to quote them. He knows where they're coming from. He's counseling the counselors. You say, now they're looking at Job. Where's the house of the prince? In other words, you were the prince in the land. Now look at where you're at. You're at the ash heap. Where's the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony? In other words, he's saying, you who came such a long distance... Evidently, you're like that person who travels from one country to another, goes to a particular airport, has a conversation as a business person, then heads back home, and you never explored the roads, the towns, and the people of those cultures and those settings. I love the book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. My book's all mocked up. Nikki saw it sitting on my desk. She said, Gary, you better hurry up. (laughs) Don't know how to take that. But then there's some great lines in the book. Quoting Mark Twain, for example. Travel, wrote Twain in his book, The Innocence Abroad, is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts alone. And I thought about that and how God can work in surprising ways to remind you in your own setting that he is sovereign when you are in a different setting. Ever had that happen? So I'm back in Israel. I'm in Jerusalem. It's October 2018 sitting down for dinner, and of all places, our tour was taken into a monastery where we were going to be fed and fed well. Seated next to me was a man who spoke English and very Midwestern in his, in his ways of speaking. We introduced ourselves to each other. His name's Jerry. My name's Gary. How you doing, Jerry? Where are you from? Marquette, Michigan. I know Michigan well. I'm from Sheboygan, Wisconsin now, though I've lived a lot of my life out east. What do you do there? I'm a doctor. Just tell me a little bit about your children. Uh, Well, they're grown now. Where'd they go to school? He begins to talk about his daughter. Where'd she go? Northwestern. Minnesota. Jerry. The second in our 
among our children went to Northwestern in Minnesota. Oh yeah? What's he doing now? He's studying to be a doctor. What kind of doctor? He wants to oversee an ICU. I oversee an ICU. He wants to be an intensivist. I'm an intensivist. Marquette, Michigan. Hey, Jerry, did you ever meet another doctor by the name of Mark Ulrichson? He was my prayer partner. I was his pastor. Jerry gets teary. He's home with Jesus. I know, I say. Here we are in Jerusalem. In a monastery in Jerusalem. What do evangelicals have anything to do with monasteries, let alone monasteries in Jerusalem? Having ribs. <laughs> Talking about Marquette, Michigan. Talking about children who went to school at Northwestern in Minnesota. Talking about a man in Jerusalem, while well, in Jerusalem, that he was this man's prayer partner, and I was his pastor. And Jerry says, Hey, Gare, um, would, your, would your son like to communicate with me about residency programs? I said, Joe's about to graduate, and so he gives me his card. I give him my card. My son, Joe, begins to communicate with Jerry. Joe is now beginning his residency out in New Jersey. This is what happens. And you take a step back and you say, only God... Only God can pull together people, life circumstances, experiences, and the teary-eyedness of a physician as he ponders the loss of his close friend, and to talk about the oneness that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see? And this happened away from home. You don't leave God behind when you leave home. College students set off. God's with them. They go through some tough times. God's present. No matter what the circumstances are in life, God is God. And so he wants these guys to realize that there's a lot of stories worth pondering when you travel the roads of life. Have you not asked those, he asks, in verse 29, who travel the roads? And how do you not accept their testimony? That the evil man is spared in the day of calamity. That he's rescued in the day of wrath. He's poking holes in their arguments about why suffering exists. Another question. Who declares this way to his face? And who repays him for what he's done when he's carried to the grave? Watch is kept over his tomb. The clouds of valley are sweet to him. And all mankind follows him. And those who go before him are innumerable. And what's happening? Well, you see, Job, the brilliant painter, is now painting a path out of the trees. And he's forcing his religious counselors unbelieving religious counselors to realize that the path is found in understanding who God is, how God works. And for Job, his understanding that Messiah was coming for us, 
Messiah came, dying in our place as the suffering one for our sins. And so notice how he ends. He ends as he begins. He comes full circle. How then, he asks in verse 34, will you comfort me? And then it's almost as if he would pause at that point as he looks at this religious counselor or counselors with empty nothings. If it ain't biblical, it's nothing. There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. He comes full circle. And you might be hurting. And you might be given a lot of religious counsel. But is it biblical? That's the question of the hour. Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain? At thy command we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that's given by thy loving hand. And then Bonhoeffer is put to death with his faith intact in the suffering one, Jesus Christ. And his poem, well, his poem makes its way around the world. And 18 years later, well, there's another bride-to-be grieving the death of her fiancé, and she finds comfort in, in Bonhoeffer's poem. Her fiancé, who died in, with injuries in a sledding accident, was the son of author Joseph Bailey and his wife Mary Lou. So she mails Bonhoeffer's poem to them. And Joe finds comfort in quote-unquote New Year 1945. So puts it into his book entitled Heaven. And 12 years later, Joe Bailey then receives a letter from a pastor in Massachusetts telling him that he has visited a terminally ill man in a Boston hospital for some period of time, given her Joe's book on poems, Heaven, to comfort her soul. And the pastor said that the dying woman had stayed awake the prior night, read it, told him of it, and the comfort that she had received from it. And a few days later, she died. Dietrich. Bonhoeffer's fiance died. Comfort. Thirty years worth of come full circle comfort. Ministers at the point of need. That's your sovereign God. Let's stand together. Father, this series is meant to construct wisdom in each and every heart of those that attend the services. So Father, continue to use the book of Job to minister not only to those who hurt, but to minister to those who minister to those who hurt. Equip us with how to ask good questions. Show us how to refute claims that are contrary to your word. Help us to explore assumptions that people make about you, about suffering, about humanity that need to be explored but also addressed and then in such a way where they're set aside and truth prevails. So Father, in these services again, if there's one or more that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, speak that heart. I pray they'll put faith and trust exclusively in Christ alone now for salvation. Praying these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you.